Welcome to NTD Evening News, our top story tonight. The official start to the 2024 presidential elections. What are we expecting to see tonight in the Iowa caucus and when will we find out who wins? Plus, the latest back and forth between former President Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy. Iris Tao at Trump's campaign headquarters in Iowa. Republican senators, even vocal critics of former President Trump, predicting a win for him tonight. More on that and the latest deal struck between Senate leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Johnson on government funding. Melina Weiskopf on Capitol Hill. After 100 days of war in the Gaza Strip, what are Israeli residents saying compared to the residents in the Gaza Strip? Plus, Hamas terrorists release another chilling hostage video. Jason Perry reports on today's tragic milestone. And the conflict is impacting beyond Gaza's borders. Another Houthi attack in the Middle East. Find out what makes this one a first. A winter storm wreaks havoc over the weekend, resulting in at least four deaths and grounding flights across the nation. Daniel Monahan has more on the sub-zero temperatures. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Right now, caucus goers in Iowa are showing up in Arctic temperatures, officially kicking off the 2024 GOP presidential primary season. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Town, who's at Trump's campaign headquarters in Des Moines. Good evening, Iris. What's happening there tonight? And what's the latest in this highly watched race? Good evening to you, Don. So we're right now at the Trump campaign headquarters here at in Des Moines, Iowa, where there's a watch party starting at 8 p.m. Eastern time for the Iowa caucus. And Trump is widely expected to win the Iowa caucus tonight. A new and final poll released right before the caucus over the weekend by the Des Moines Register, which is a widely ex widely respected poll, shows that Trump is enjoying some 48 percent of support among likely Iowa caucus goers. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley comes in second. Polling at 20%, and DeSantis comes in third, polling at 16%. So these are the latest numbers we get right before the caucus. But Trump, meanwhile, is taking aim at his competitors just hours before this caucus starts. He wrote on True Social today that both DeSantis and Haley are not MAGA enough to win the GOP nomination. He also went on to dismiss and claim that Nikki Haley is surging in polls, saying that he's polling some 57 points ahead of Nikki Haley. He asked what's up. So one big thing to really watch for tonight is really who's going to come in second place to Trump and whoever gets that spot is expected to gain a lot of momentum in the primaries going forward. Meanwhile, another thing to watch for tonight is a new and ongoing back and forth between Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy. And Trump has largely left out Vivek Ramaswamy in his attacks on both DeSantis and Haley for the past months, but that started to change just recently. And Trump today again criticized Ramaswamy 
Ramaswamy saying votes for Ramaswamy would be, quote, wasted. He had just days before that uh, he liked Ramaswamy, but Ramaswamy, quote, played it too cute with them. So Ramaswamy, who is still polling actually in the single digits, responded today saying he's not going to trade attacks with Trump. Adding that, though, that the new attention that his campaign is getting is the evidence that they're surging. So we're going to soon find out tonight about whether the claims of their campaigns surging by both Nikki Haley and Ramaswamy will come true. Don. Yeah, a lot to watch for tonight for sure. Uh, but when are we going to find out actually about the results? Right, so right now at this moment, caucus goers right here in Iowa should be going out or heading toward their caucus sites. In this freezing temperature, actually, with the wind chills, it's going to feel like negative 28 degrees outside. So it's really cold here in Iowa. And of course, depending on how big the district and the precinct is, the time to count the votes or the number of which candidate is supporting will vary. But we're expecting, for example, places with a smaller number of people going, the results will start coming in about like 30 minutes after the caucus starts at 7 o'clock. But others, other areas where there are more people that might come in in like hours after the caucus actually starts. So we're expecting to see results coming in around like 10 or 11 p.m. Eastern time. Back to you. All right. Thank you very much for that update, Iris. And as candidates make their last appeals to voters, Iowans are weighing their words and deciding how to cast their votes. Let's hear what they had to say. The Iowa GOP caucus is finally here. Candidates have braved the harsh weather conditions to make their final pleas to residents of Iowa. We go to the local high school. In my case, it's up at Madrid, Iowa. And we'll caucus up there. And boy, it's going to be cold tonight because that's out in the open, open field. We're going ahead and uh, we expect that many people will, uh, will turn out. Of course, we want people to be careful, uh, but uh, we think that uh, turnout will be strong. What are Hawkeye state voters looking for in their chosen candidate? I really think that Trump would be the best candidate because he can deal with the world leaders and um, the business aspect of things. This supporter of Nikki Haley likes the candidate's chances going into the caucus. I think she has a strong chance. I don't think Trump has nearly the following people think he does, or maybe I'm just hopeful. Um, and of the remaining candidates, I think she's tra her tra tra trajectory is in the right way direction. This voter has a complicated reason for supporting Vivek Ramaswamy but it could represent a similar view that others share. I voted for Trump last time. Um, I just don't think they're going to let him win. I, and, and honestly, what I would love to see is, I would love to see Trump as president again, and I would love to see uh, Vivek as vice president. This supporter of Ron DeSantis sees the Florida governor as someone who can unite Republicans. We also feel like he's someone that can help unite the party instead of tearing it down. Uh, so for us, that's a really big piece. Um, in terms of, of the Republican movement, I feel like DeSantis really is uh, someone who we can be excited about. Uh, I think he has a lot of what Trump offered initially without a lot of the negative criticism uh, that Trump would follow with after. GOP supporters have a wide variety of reasons for getting behind their chosen candidate. Now only time will tell which candidate had the broadest appeal across Iowa.
And NTD News will bring you live coverage of the 2024 Iowa caucuses tonight. Our dedicated reporters and esteemed expert panels will provide real-time updates and in-depth analysis. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024 as they break down the action live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's going to be a historic night, so be sure to tune in. How likely is a Trump victory in Iowa tonight? Senate Republicans, even those critical of the former president, anticipate he'll win a, by a big margin. NTD's Melina Wise Cup has more on this along with updates from Congress. Over the past few weeks, congressional Republicans and notably those in leadership positions have fallen in line to endorse former President Trump in his bid to take back the White House later this year. But the top two Republicans in the Senate, that is Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Whip John Thune, have held back their support. Even so, some of Trump's most vocal critics have predicted a big win for him in Iowa later this evening. Senator Mitt Romney, for example, predicted Trump will win by a big margin and Nikki Haley will probably win the second place crown. And some say the win could be historic. Trump supporter Senator Lindsey Graham pointing out that he thinks Trump has a chance to make history by winning more than a 13-point margin. The former president still making a last-minute plea with Iowa voters. If you're sick as a dog, you say, darling, I gotta make it. Even if you vote and then pass away, it's worth it. Even if Trump does take Iowa, the next early voting state may not be as easy. That's because New Hampshire's laws allow for independent voters to participate in the GOP primary. In other news, this week is the deadline to fund the government, which right now is operating on a short-term funding resolution. And now it's looking like that short-term resolution may again take the front seat. Over the weekend, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Mike Johnson reached a deal to extend government funding again temporarily through March. It does preserve Republicans' two-step approach, so some funding will run out on March 1st. Other funding will run out on March 8th. Speaker Johnson defended the need for this approach so they could later secure a longer-term funding bill that would secure certain cuts to certain programs. But still, some House Republicans are upset. The conservative-led House Freedom Caucus bluntly saying, this is what surrender looks like. This would be the third time that Congress has kicked the can down the road on funding during this fiscal year. The Senate will take the first vote on this tomorrow. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is home from the hospital today after spending two weeks to treat complications from surgery for prostate cancer. He's come under fire for keeping his treatment a secret from senior Biden administration leaders and staff for weeks. He'll be working from home as he recovers. A statement from his doctors say he progressed well throughout his stay and his strength is rebounding. They also note the cancer was treated early and his prognosis is excellent. Some in Congress are questioning why the Pentagon chief left people in the dark about his medical condition, including his boss, President Biden. Biden calls Austin's failure to tell him about his sur surgery a lapse of judgment and has no plans to fire him. It's now been 100 days since the war began between Israel and Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip. Hamas has been calling for a permanent ceasefire, while Israel has vowed to keep fighting until its goals are complete. NTD's Jason Perry takes a closer look at the war as it hits this tragic milestone.
After 100 days into the Israel-Hamas war, families in Israel are still coming to terms with how the war started. The devastating attack on Israel by Hamas terrorists, who killed over 1,200 innocent civilians on October 7th. This couple visited their home in one of the villages that was ransacked by Hamas that day. Personally, for me, I feel that coming back here is more a cure than a, than a, a disease because uh, it, it helps me uh, work these things inside of me. It's kind of a closing a circle. Meanwhile, a resident in the Gaza Strip shared her thoughts. The 100 days that passed felt as long as a whole life. They were the worst days we ever lived. We feel that we're in a nightmare, that we can't leave. We don't know what will happen next. Is there something worse than this? And the 132 hostages who remain in the Gaza Strip have now been in captivity for 100 days. Over the weekend, Hamas terrorists released a video of this hostage, Noah Argamani, saying that these two other hostages had been killed, Yossi Sharabi and Atai Seversky. Israel's defense minister shared his insight into the situation. Hamas is severely beaten by Israeli forces. What's left for Hamas is to lash out at the sensitive nerves of Israeli society through psychological abuse of Israeli family members. And he added this. The release of hostages will happen only as a result of military pressure. They talk to us only when they want something. The something now is a ceasefire. The moment we give them a ceasefire without a price, they won't talk to us. And across Israel's northern border, things continue to escalate at the 100-day mark. On Sunday, Hezbollah fired an anti-tank missile into Israel, killing a mother and her son. After the strike, the IDF released video showing it striking Hezbollah targets in Lebanon. These cross-border exchanges between Israel and Hezbollah have been the fiercest fighting since the two were at war in 2006. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has warned that if Hezbollah starts an all-out war, it would turn Beirut into another Gaza Strip. Jason Perry, NTD News. Tensions still escalating in the Middle East. The Houthis in Yemen struck a U.S. cargo ship today, apparently for the first time with a ballistic missile. The U.S. Central Command said a bulk carrier owned and operated by U.S.-based Eagle Bulk sustained minor damage. The crew didn't report any injuries on board. The ship is continuing on its way. The ship was hit roughly 100 miles offshore in the Gulf of Aden. It was carrying a cargo of steel products. The Houthis claimed responsibility for the attack. They said they fired a number of direct and accurate missiles. The attack came after U.S. fighter jets shot down a cruise missile fired at a Navy destroyer in the Red Sea on Sunday. The Houthis have vowed to retaliate after the U.S. and allies hit dozens of Houthi targets in Yemen last week. The U.S. had also vowed that further Houthi launches would be met with the response. So where do things stand now, 100 days after the Israel-Hamas war began? Joining us now to give an overview of the situation, we have Josh Hammer. He's the senior editor-at-large for Newsweek and just got back from Israel last week. All right, Josh, thanks for joining us here today. It's been now 100 days since Hamas's October 7 attack on Israel. So to start off, maybe give us a 10,000-foot view of the situation right now, like uh, where things stand. 
Sure. So I, I actually just got back from Israel last Friday. I was there for about a week. Where things stand militarily is that Israel has complete operational control of northern Gaza right now. Northern Gaza has been thoroughly gone town to town, village to village, door to door. The IDF has control of the situation there, but the situation in southern Gaza remains fluid. It remains in flux. That is currently where the action is. That is where Israelis currently believe the hostages who, God willing, are still alive, will be held in the tunnels there in southern Israel, probably centered around the Hamas hotbed of Khan Yunus. That is where Yawa Sinwar, the mastermind of Hamas, the head of Hamas inside Gaza, they, they believe that he is there in Khan Yunus. So the situation in Gaza right now remains in play. And, you know, when I was there in southern Israel, when I was there in the kibbutzim, in the villages right on the border with Gaza that were slaughtered, you can hear the IDF bombing in the background. It's, 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 it's all very small over there. Israel is a small country. Gaza is a very narrow territory. You can literally hear the bombs being dropped. You can hear the machine guns being fired there. So that's the situation in the south. The situation up north with Hezbollah and Lebanon is also very volatile right now. It's, it's getting a lot more dangerous than it was even a couple months ago, and it was pretty dangerous then. Just earlier this week on Sunday, you had a mother and a son in northern Israel who were killed in a an anti-tank missile that was fired from Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. So one of the big questions that I was talking with folks about over there when I was there on this trip is, is this about to become a full-scale two-front war soon? That's one of the big questions currently there as well. Do you think that that's uh, likely in your view? I think it's more likely than not. Now, again, I, I, the Western media has not done a good enough job, I think, of depicting how hot the situation is up north. So when I was on this trip, we went down south. I was there in Kafaraza. I was there in Rayim, which is the site of the, of the Nova Music Festival. I saw the Hamas carnage up front. That understandably, is where most of the Western media attention has been since October 7th. That is where the IDF tanks have been rolling again. That's where most of the door-to-door -door urban combat, urban warfare is taking place. The situation in the north and the Israeli communities within a two to three mile or two, three kilometer radius of the Lebanese border, it's really bad there. So roughly 100,000 Israelis have actually been evacuated from their homes there in northern Israel. They are in displaced persons facilities. They have not been able to go back yet. And the Israelis that I spoke with there on the ground, they feel like now is the time. This is a, a war with Hezbollah has been building up for a long time now, 10 years there. They, they more or less feel that with everyone who's been called out of reserves, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are, are there in uniform, this is the time. You have 100,000 people who are not able to go back to their homes. The economy can't sustain this for too long. They think that now is really the time for them. So you were there. You're back now. Can you elaborate more on the atmosphere uh, when you were there? How are the Israelis holding up? They're, they're holding up well. So uh, there's one thing that's pretty unshakable about the Jewish state and perhaps to a large extent really the Jewish people, which is, we have a fairly unbreakable spirit. Um, it, it, that's one of the things that I think has kind of helped the Jewish people through all the ups and downs, all the pogroms, all the tragedies, all the expulsions, and all the various horrors that have afflicted the Jewish people for many thousands of years now, is that even in these times of unspeakable darkness and danger, you rally together, you hug each other, you sing, and you weep for the dead, but you also trust that God Almighty has a plan, that he ultimately has it all figured out. So some of the memories that, that I really will most take away from this trip that I was just on 
is even in those places of darkness, even in Kafar Aza, standing outside these homes that looked like they were just bombed, bombed. There's really no way to describe the carnage and the wreckage that I saw standing there in the middle of the music festival where you had hundreds of people slaughtered or taken hostages. These beautiful photos of these 20, 30 something year old men and women just staring back at you. Even then and there, we went together, we embraced each other, and we were singing and, and really just trying to kind of find joy in those moments. So you have that unshakable spirit. And, you know, the Jewish people were, were exiles for roughly 2,000 years, following the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 until the founding of the modern state in 1948. And most of the soldiers that I saw there, I think that they are just honored for the privilege to defend the Jewish people now that they actually have a state. All right, just one final question. Taking a step back, how has uh, been the global stance on the war? Has it changed uh, compared to the beginning? Uh, any difference? Yeah, it's definitely started to get a, a little worse for Israel. Everyone with more than one brain cell could have seen that coming. This happens time and time again. Whenever, whenever, every time that there is a horrible thing that happens to Israel, you know, you see the sympathies of the world community, of the international of the international community. They always kind of swell up, and then Israel has the sympathy of the world for you know, anywhere between one and 10 days, roughly speaking, maybe one month at the absolute most. And then inevitably it starts to shift. You know, the, the Palestinian Arabs uh, don't have a heck of a lot going for them when it comes to, to sympathy, but to their credit, they have managed really to bamboozle and hoodwink much of the Western world. They have a very sophisticated and savvy PR operation going for them. Unfortunately, I think the Biden administration, now that we are in the middle of an election year, Biden is looking at Arab votes in, in swing states like Michigan and Minnesota. He's paying very close attention to that. I think that he is really starting to crack down on Israel. He definitely, definitely does not want a full-scale two-front war in the north with Hezbollah. If Israel does ultimately feel that that full-scale war with Hezbollah is, God forbid, necessary, which I think it probably probably is going to be the case, that's going to be a very interesting dynamic and, a, and possibly a real clash with the Biden administration. All right, Josh, pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for having me. Meanwhile, severe and snowy weather is causing travel headaches nationwide. More than 3,500 flights were canceled today, according to the FlightAware tracking site. This is the fourth time in as many days with at least 2,400 planes not taking off due to inclement weather conditions. Along the airports hit especially hard Chicago, Dallas, Denver, and Nashville. This after severe winter storms brought many cities in the United States to a near standstill. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the cold snap. Dangerous freezing temperatures affected sports events and travel across the country. Driving in Oklahoma on Sunday was a matter of utmost caution with nearly whiteout conditions. Roads in Wapalo, Iowa were nearly impassable as snow drifts and ice covered the roadways. In Portland, Oregon, a winter storm caused a tree to smash a police cruiser. Over a hundred trees toppled near Portland on Saturday, including one that fell on a house and killed a man. On the other side of the country in Portland, Maine, a neighborhood landmark was washed away during a record high tide. Millions were under the threat of flooding from days of heavy rain and snow. An airport in Buffalo is hit by fierce winds and snow-covered runways, forcing it to cancel over 100 flights. And the Buffalo Bills-Pittsburgh Steelers NFL playoff game had to be postponed from Sunday to Monday. Here, steam from a large cloud of water vapor hovers over Lake Michigan as an Arctic blast from Canada swept across the United States. The blast led to power outages for hundreds of thousands of customers in the Northeast and Pacific Northwest. 
The Arctic storms also left four dead. The National Weather Service has issued a stark warning, with over 95 million people under wind chill advisories, and some states expecting wind chills to plummet to a bone-chilling minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Up next, Texas authorities say they're not to blame for the drowning of three immigrants. This after the White House suggested the Lone Star State is partially responsible for their deaths. And the IMF warns that artificial intelligence could impact 40% of all jobs. The organization is encouraging governments worldwide to implement comprehensive social safety nets. Stay tuned for that after the break. Welcome back. Texas is not taking the blame for the recent drowning of three immigrants in the Rio Grande. This, as Homeland Security demands Texas stop blocking border patrol from accessing certain areas. NTD's Arian Pazdar has a border update. A woman and two children died on Friday attempting to illegally cross into the U.S. near Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas. The Biden administration later claimed Texas National Guard prevented Border Patrol agents from entering the park to save them. On Sunday, Homeland Security sent a letter saying they demand that Texas immediately cease and desist any action taken by the state that block Border Patrol's full access to the U.S.-Mexico border in and around the Shelby Park area. However, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said that when Border Patrol requested access to the river, the drownings had already occurred and found in Mexico. This is in line with the statement from the Texas Military Department, which says the drowning took place on Mexico's side, and that when Border Patrol requested access to the park, they stated that Mexican authorities had already recovered the bodies of two drowned migrants. Texas is now blaming the deaths on President Biden's immigration policies. And former President Trump on Sunday briefly commented on the situation at the border. As soon as I take the oath of office, I'll terminate every open border policy of the Biden administration and begin the largest deportation operation in American history. And in related news, lawmakers are reacting to news of an immigration deal in the Senate. Fox News says the bipartisan deal would increase available green cards by 50,000 a year, give work permits to every illegal immigrant released from custody, allow 5,000 immigrants per day into the U.S. and more. House Speaker Mike Johnson commented saying absolutely not. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene says this is not a border deal, this is border surrender. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. The International Monetary Fund, or IMF, says artificial intelligence could impact 40% of all jobs worldwide. The organization wants governments to take action. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The IMF wants governments worldwide to take action, warning that artificial intelligence could replace jobs and increase inequality. Its new report came out right before the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, where business and political leaders are gathering this week in Davos, Switzerland. The IMF says advanced economies, such as the United States, will be affected the most by AI. These nations have more jobs with cognitive-based tasks and have the money and infrastructure to widely use AI. In these countries, the IMF says almost 60% of workers 
could be impacted. I hope that that is literally everyone who uses a computer or touches a computer at any point during the day. Bob Rogers is the CEO of OII AI, which uses AI to solve supply chain problems. Rogers says it's only certain jobs that are being replaced and that he currently doesn't see it happening across the board. He sees many people benefiting from AI using the example of chemists trying to invent a new drug. Two weeks of research identifying candidate chemicals um, can be replaced by a few hours of research when the research is enhanced by a, um, uh, an AI search engine that's searching chemical research papers and other databases. Um, so, you know, when you think about that, that chemist is not going to be replaced simply because they were able to compress two weeks of work. The IMF warns inequality will grow because not everyone will benefit from AI. It says this could lead to political instability. It says world governments should be proactive by implementing comprehensive social safety nets, like retraining workers, implementing policies that promote fair access to AI, and cooperating internationally. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. Today, Americans across the country are remembering civil rights icon Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The day was marked all over the country with events including a wreath laying at the MLK Memorial in Washington, D.C. In King's home state of Georgia, a commemorative service took place at the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. The holiday always falls on the third Monday of January. This year, it coincides with King's actual birthday. Coming up, Taiwan wrapped up the world's first election of 2024. Voters chose their next leader, the man the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want. And what do the election results say about Taiwan? Our guest says the Taiwanese people are rejecting the political system of communist China. Hear more in just a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Voters in Iowa are showing up to caucuses amid frigid temperatures. Polls showed former President Trump leading in the first race of the 2024 primary season. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was released from the hospital after two weeks. He'll be working from home as he recovers from complications from a prostate cancer operation. It's been 100 days since the Israel-Hamas war began. The situation continues escalating between Israeli troops and the Hezbollah terrorists near the border with Lebanon. The Iran-backed Houthis fired a missile that hit a U.S. cargo ship in the Gulf of Aden, below Yemen. This appears to be the first time the Houthis successfully struck a U.S. ship. Taiwan's president-elect is exactly the man its communist neighbor doesn't want in power. William Lai's win makes the first election of the year a triumph against the totalitarian regime in Beijing and also marks an unprecedented third term consecutively for Lai's party, the DPP. In his victory speech, Lai reiterated Taiwan's direction, expressing determination to uphold democracy and freedom on the island, even under threats from the Chinese Communist Party, and affirming that Taiwan is not a bargaining chip between the United States and China. Taiwan just chose the man that will shape his relations with China and the U.S. for the next four years, William Lai. In his victory speech, Lai thanked Taiwan's 23 million people. 
between democracy and authoritarianism, we will stand on the side of democracy. The Republic of China, Taiwan will continue to walk side by side with democracies from around the world. Worth noting, Beijing did not favor lie to win. China has framed the election as Taiwan's choice between peace and war. And the regime has said Lai would bring Taiwan closer to war. The communist regime sees Taiwan as part of China, despite never having controlled it. Lai has been a staunch defender of Taiwan's self-governing status. I will act in accordance with our democratic and free constitutional order in a manner that is balanced and maintains the status quo. At the same time, we're also determined to safeguard Taiwan from continuing threats and intimidation from China. An expert said that by choosing Lai, the people of Taiwan hope to keep the status quo and reject Beijing's rule. They do not embrace a simplistic binary view of war and peace and aspire to forge their own path. Ultimately, we don't necessarily have to see Taiwan as being sandwiched between the United States and China in their competition. Lai won 40 percent of the vote, Hou Yuyi from the main opposition party taking 33 percent. Third-party candidate Ko Benjua won 26 percent. We may be sad, but we must not be discouraged. We must transform the power of indignation into the forces of supervision over the Democratic Progressive Party. His victory marks the first time ever that a political party in Taiwan gets to stay in power after two terms. Lai will be sworn in this May, succeeding current President Tsai Ing-wen. During his campaign, Lai pledged to work closely with the U.S. and bolster Taiwan's defenses. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken congratulated William Lai on his victory, writing on X that the U.S. also congratulates the Taiwanese people for participating in free and fair elections and demonstrating the strength of their democratic system. Taiwan is already facing challenges just two days following the election. Nauru, an island nation in the Central Pacific, is cutting diplomatic ties with Taiwan. Nauru said earlier today that it seeks formal diplomatic ties with communist China instead. This makes Nauru Taipei's first diplomatic ally to switch to Beijing following a presidential election. The Chinese communist regime has worked for decades to lure Taiwan's diplomatic allies. If a country wants to build diplomatic ties with communist China, it has to cut ties with Taiwan. The Taiwanese government said the latest development was like an ambush. A Taiwanese official said Beijing offered Nauru some more money than Taiwan did. The latest move by Nauru leaves Taiwan with just 12 diplomatic allies, including Guatemala, Paraguay, Eswatini, Palau, and the Marshall Islands. Joining us now to offer his take on the results of Taiwan's election, we have Nansu, senior investigative reporter for the Epoch Times. All right, Nan, thank you for being here with us. To start off, I want, want you to lay it out very simply for us. What is the significance of the Taiwan election? Well, basically, it's, uh, it's the opinion of uh, mainstream society in Taiwan that they want to keep the current status of Taiwan straight. They don't want to become a part of the Chinese communist regime. All right. And of course, we know the results by now. Lai is the winner, William Lai. And what does that mean for Beijing, for China? Well, for Beijing, for China, basically, it's that the majority of uh, Taiwan's society to say no to the so-called one party with two political system that Beijing want Taiwan become a part of the regime. 
And another thing is uh, William Lai, he got 40% of the vote in Taiwan, while his predecessor, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, got around 60%. So there's a little bit of a difference here. Does that signify a change within Taiwan potentially? What's your thoughts? Well, it does not change on the part that's related to the Taiwan and uh, China relation. Uh, now, the the percentage he got, it's a little bit, uh, it's like about 20% lower, which is understandable because you have one party, you know, after continually uh, as the ruling party for two terms, now you're going to the third term, which is already history, uh, history in making in the Taiwan's history. But he's going to face some challenges, right? Because his party lost the majority in parliament. Yes, they have to deal with that issue. So there will be a lot of discussion before the May, uh, when they finally, when he finally swore into the uh, into the presidential uh, position. So uh, there are ways to solve that. And maybe you can elaborate on what what are the ways to solving it. Well, maybe one way is to build an alliance with the uh, TPP party, which is called the White Party. Uh, now, they, they are the third party. They didn't get enough vote to win the, any single district uh, in the legislative chamber election. But however, through the overall election, they got like 26.5% of the vote. So they got a total eight seats. Uh, in the legislative chamber. So in, now if uh, uh, if the DPP party uh, build some sort of alliance uh, with uh, TPP, then they will have a majority. And let me also get your thoughts on the Chinese military releasing uh, images of drills on Sunday, re immediately after Taiwan's election, which happened on Saturday. Well, that's it's already a routine. Basically, through the entire election process, the Chinese military's proactive behavior around Taiwan has never stopped. So it's always there. Uh, so uh, you know, uh, Taiwan's military, Taiwan's government, as well as U.S. government and the country, other countries like Philippines, like of Japan, they just need to be aware of it. Do you think after this election, uh, the the chances of China actually uh, invading Taiwan would increase or would it be relatively the same as before? It's going to be relatively the same. But however, as China's economy uh, going down the hill uh, in the direction, depending how fast China's economy is going down, that is really the major factor that's going to affect uh, Xi Jinping's decision if he wants to invade Taiwan. Because if China's economy really go down really fast, then uh, the Chinese Communist Party may want to start a war with Taiwan so that they can uh, enact uh, martial law to control the country. All right, one final question. So 2024 is a year with uh, a number of elections. Uh, the Taiwan election is the first one to kick off this year. What do you think if there's a message that this election is sending to the rest of the world? I think democracy will eventually proceed. That's the message. Taiwan's democracy it's well matured and it's actually you look at the entire uh, voting process it's much better than the united states voting process 
All right. Thank you very much today, Nansu, reporter for the Epoch Times. Thank you for having me. And in more news about Taiwan, with no majority in parliament, how does the incoming leader plan to navigate the mounting pressure from Beijing? Plus, the president-elect is hoping for some U.S. support as a group of former senior U.S. officials drop by the island. Curious about what President Biden has to say about Saturday's elections? That and more tonight at 9.30 Eastern, only on NTD's China in Focus. Coming up, a dance performance with the message, ultimately, the good will win. Find out why audience members in Berkeley, California, are saying they would come right back to see it again the next day. And in snowy Buffalo, the Bills had to reach out to their fans for help in order to play today. Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we return. Audiences are saying Shen Yun is filled with joy. Theater goers at a recent performance in Berkeley stopped to tell NTD about their experience at the classical Chinese dance performance. Theater goers such as Charles Martin came to see Shen Yun's display of classical Chinese dance in Berkeley, California. I'd come back and see it again tomorrow night or tomorrow afternoon, I think it's playing. If I had tickets, I would. It's absolutely terrific. The color, the the movement, the motion, the orchestra, it's just fantastic. The performance has around 20 dance pieces utilizing a unique animated backdrop. But I'm very uh, taken back by the screen that's in the back and how everything coordinates with that. That's just, I've never seen anything like that in my life. It's wonderful. I like choreography. Music is beautiful. I like how the live performance is blended with the movie that it's played in the background, how it blends uh, uh, perfectly. Um, the beauty of the costumes, uh, again, it's a just combination. Great visual experience for me. Oh, I just think it's filled with joy that the dancers um, just have energy from almost inside, within, and they're very disciplined. Their dancing is so precise and rehearsed so beautifully with the music. Shen Yun artists train in New York, showcasing a divinely inspired culture. But the Chinese government doesn't allow them to perform in China. So this much restriction on an artist, that's really painful. And plus, uh, when, when, I, when I saw the spiritual endings and that is so much positivity which I got from these performances. And you know, the, the belief that whatever is going wrong around the world, ultimately the good will win. Ultimately, whoever is kind, whoever is, is compassionate is going to lead the way. So that was a beautiful message. The light that a company would do something like this uh, and, you know, to realize in the United States that we have God's freedom, we have God's liberty. And to realize that China does not have that. And that's real scary if something like that comes to the United States. And just, I don't know, I just can't say enough. NTD News, California. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, a frigid weekend of NFL playoffs. And it continues today with two more games, including one happening now in uh, snowy Buffalo. Now, how did the Bills even get their stadiums ready? 
Yeah, they actually reached out to their own fans, offering anyone over the age of 18 $20 an hour plus food and breaks who can get to the stadium uh, help, uh, to help them shovel the snow. Now, this game was postponed from yesterday because a blizzard dumped roughly 18 inches of snow in like a 30-hour span. As you can see here, they got some people to come out. It looks like they had some fun too. Now the snow has mostly stopped. Temperatures are in the 20s but dropping. These games are of course, you know, tough for fans to come to. I mean, for the Saturday night game in Kansas City, it was the fourth coldest NFL game ever. You know, minus four kickoff. The windshield was in the minus 20s. Tickets were being resold for as little as 10% of face value. And there were plenty of empty seats. The one in Buffalo is considerably warmer, but probably harder to get to. Right now, the Bills are actually leading 21 to 10 in the third quarter over the Steelers. You know, Dave, I got to wonder, what are some types of the, some of the challenges uh, that the players are facing in these types of games? You know, apart from like avoiding frostbite, gripping the ball is much more difficult when, when it's colder, which usually means more turnovers, which makes the game much more unpredictable. That's probably Pittsburgh's best shot, too. They're 10-point underdogs against Buffalo. Looks like it's not really working, though. I mean, they're down 11. But as far as the field, the more snow or ice, of course, it slows down the players. If the field is frozen too, you know, your cleats are really no good in those conditions either. Saturday night in Kansas City, the Dolphins, which are generally regarded as having the fastest offense, they really looked average on that field under those conditions. Now, certainly the Chiefs already had a great defense. I'm sure it made it that much more difficult. Now, the weather could impact next week as well because it's not expected to be much warmer when the Chiefs host the Texans. So that's something to watch for this week. Yeah, and, and on that point, the uh, Chiefs-Dolphins game was also trending on X Saturday night along with Peacock's streaming service, but seems like not in a good way. So why are fans upset? Yeah, the game was not on NBC. They put it on Peacock instead. So you had to have a subscription. Some fans, of course, refused to flock to X to uh, air their complaints. Now, this was the first ever playoff game behind a paywall. Now, they do air Thursday night games on Amazon Prime, but this is a playoff game. I mean, this is comparable to having like an 80s playoff game on like cable TV. You know, it would have been anarchy if they did that. It probably won't, won't be the last time either because despite all the complaints, the game averaged 23 million viewers. I mean, that's actually higher than what NBC averaged for a first round game in two of the last three years. Now, didn't hurt that these both these teams have national appeal plus Taylor Swift is in attendance since it was a Chiefs game so I'd expect more of these to continue. All right let's talk a little bit about tennis finally. Uh, so the Australian Open started Sunday and new mother and former number one Naomi uh, Osaka fell in the first round. Now was this uh, somewhat expected after a 15 month break? I mean, it's not surprising, I guess. I'm sure it takes time to ramp up to speed. She actually has played, she played two weeks ago in her return, split a pair of matches. Now, she's only 26. She's won four Grand Slam titles, including this tournament, both in 2019 and again in 2021. Now, another former top-ranked player who took time off to become a mother and then return is Caroline Wozniacki. She took off like three and a half years before returning last summer to the U.S. Open. Incredibly, she made the fourth round there. She won her first round match already um, in this tournament. Now on the men's side, no Rafael Nadal. He already had a setback in his return. But top-ranked Novak Djokovic, he won his first round match already. He's won this tournament 10 times, including each of the last four that he's, that he's played in anyway. So something to watch for there anyway. All right, thanks Dave, always a pleasure. Thank you, Don. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Don Ma. Tiffany will be back tomorrow. Good night.